My name's Dave. I'm an alcoholic. Hi, thank you, Lacey, for asking me to come speak, and thanks, Brian, for coming from Costa Mesa. Um, yeah, I, I really appreciate the opportunity to speak. Uh, I'm, I'm grateful, and uh, to me, gratitude is more than just a feeling or a thought. It's action, and um, this is part of what I do, to give back to those people who so freely gave to me this program of recovery, which completely changed my life. I was a mess. And, um, you know, uh, I, I'm so different today. Like today I went uh, surfing all morning with a bunch of other alcoholics and took a nap and then uh, came here. And that's not, for 20 years, that's not what I was doing on a Saturday. No, it was just getting, you know, getting warmed up. Um, so yeah, I, you know, it's important for me to remember and understand what an alcoholic is because I had no idea when I got here. No idea. And, um, you know, I, I was, I, I guess you could describe me a little bit as high functioning, but I was a fraud. I actually, right before I got sober, I was working in a treatment center. There was uh, a case of Coors Light, a bottle of vodka in the car and blow all over the front seat. So um, I was a mess. I was really good at uh, faking it. And uh, I, you know, I had to, I'm so grateful I was working there because they know what to do with me, <laughs> you know. Um, so anyway, um, you know, the first time I drank and had unfettered access to alcohol was on Catalina Island. And I used to be, yeah, yeah. And uh, hopefully, I, I was at a bachelor party there once. Hopefully, we didn't steal your golf cart because we did that too. But uh, th this was this was many years ago. This and I was like about 12 or 13. And um, you know, I was part of this pseudo Boy Scouts uh, called the Trailblazers. And it was we did one thing every year. Our fathers got their sons and their daughters. I can't believe they took the daughters because it was bad. And, and they got a bunch of kegs. They got a bunch of steaks. And we went over to Catalina. And the, they sat around. We surfed, played in the water all day. And they got drunk and passed out. And so what do you think we did when, when the sun set and the dads were asleep in their tents? We commando crawled over to those kegs. And uh, there was one dad that would try to catch us, but he wasn't very good. We were too sneaky. And... and uh, we got cups filled with sand and beer, and uh, I remember just having the time of my life and uh, vaguely hooking up with this older blonde girl, and uh, and then I woke up face down in the sand with the sun coming up, and and I was like, this is awesome, you know, and but I had blacked out. Right from the start, and, and you know, some people drink or use their way into alcoholism or addiction, but not me. I first time I could get my hands on alcohol, I lost complete control. And you know, I didn't really realize it. I didn't really realize what was happening to me, and and a lot of other young people around me were doing the same thing. And um, I didn't drink every day after that. But, you know, and I did really well in school. I was kind of my first character defect. Um, 
Well, my first character defect was fear. One of, one of my big ones though in high school was perfectionism. And um, I did really well. And uh, I remember my senior year in high school, I broke my leg playing soccer. And um, they gave me a bunch of Vicodin, and I liked that. But I started binge drinking because I no longer had sports and um, started going down to Tijuana. I lived in San Diego, and we'd go across the border. You used to be able to just walk over there, and, uh, you know, someplace you didn't even really need an ID, but you'd be 18, and I would uh, black out constantly, you know, and just get in fights and wake up across the border under my car, like, and drive drunk, all this stuff, and that continued on into college, and, I, you know, I started to get in a lot of trouble. Like, I remember uh, one time I was sitting handcuffed by the UCPD on the curb. We'd been uh, just terrorizing our, our next-door neighbors. And uh, I remember just sitting there and hearing, you know, I came to a moment of clarity. I heard the over the speak, speaker, it's that Dave Alexander guy again. And I, I'm like, what? How do, you, how do they know my name? Well, I'd been blacking out so much. They knew me, and I didn't even know them, you know. And so... Um, you know, by the way, for some of you guys, I did drugs, too, when I was there. But I loved alcohol. I just loved it. And um, so I graduated, and I went around the world and uh, drank in foreign countries and terrorized people there. And I remember uh, this kind of describes my alcoholism perfectly. I was in Lagos, Portugal. And we get off a train, and... This nice family comes up and says, you can stay in our house for, you know, it was like 20 bucks a night or something ridiculously cheap. And they moved me and my friend into the daughter's room. It was all pink and lacy. And they moved these two German guys into their room and they moved into the garage and we took over their house. And they had no, we seemed like nice guys, right? <laughs> At least I did. And they had no idea what they were getting into. And the first night, um, Lagos is kind of like Cabo in Portugal. And so the first night, I just went nuts. And um, I remember walking around the town letting uh, all these little dogs off their leashes. And there's just this, yeah, there's just this pack of dogs running around. And we thought it was real, thought that was funny. And then, uh, and then I blacked out, and apparently I got in a truck with a bunch of locals, and disappeared and um, I woke up to something slamming on my back and it's daylight and this kid, I'm in the countryside and this little kid is using me as a, a launch ramp for his BMX bike and and uh, I get up and I'm like, oh, you know, little bastard and I'm out. I don't know where I am. I'm in the country and fortunately I chased after him and he was pedaling back towards Lagos. And, uh, you know, I'm like, oh, my God, I could have been killed. And then I'm pretty sore. What happened? And uh, don't have a shirt. And I had my wallet, but there wasn't a lot of money left. But um, I had enough to uh, buy a shirt, you know. And I'm talking to myself, like, this is getting dangerous, you know. And I better be careful. But it's kind of hot out here. <laughs> and... You know, and that that's not going to happen again. That is just unlucky. Just it was that drink or this or that that sent me over the edge. And by the time I reach the town, I, I buy a T-shirt and I walk right back into a bar. 
And uh, I meet this woman from Rhode Island, and we just hit it off really well. And uh, the next morning, I wake up in the house in the daughter's uh, room uh, with the woman from Rhode Island. We both don't have any clothes on, and the woman of the house is banging pots over my head, screaming at me. And she starts chasing me around the house. The two German guys and my friend are nowhere to be found. And downstairs is the man of the house sitting at a table, and a bunch of guys are outside waiting for me to come down. I'm like, oh, no. And somehow I talked my way out of that. The only requirement was is that I leave Portugal and never come back. And that's how I drink. And the way I drink is, one, I lose complete control, right? And that's kind of obvious. I don't think anyone would be here if they didn't have that problem. But however, some of my friends that I went to with in college, they had that same issue, and they just stopped one day. They got married, they got a job, they had kids, or something changed in their life, and they just stopped drinking like that. Me, I couldn't. So I had lost the power of control, but I also had more importantly lost the power of choice in drink which means that no matter what I thought or what I did, I always did it again. And it says that humiliation, suffering, consequences at certain times, not all the time, not even most of the time, but at certain times will just disappear right out of my head. And that's my experience. And for the next 15 years, I drank and I drank and I drank again. And I wanted to stop probably four or five years before I got sober, and I wanted to stay stopped, and I couldn't. I could not stay stopped, and I would drink again, and I had lost my willpower, was insufficient to keep me sober, and I was like, I am going to die from this. And I was blacking out and getting arrested so much that I found a solution for a time, which was cocaine, which kept me out of jail but it did keep me uh, holed up looking out of the window for the shadow people every weekend. And that's usually what I was doing about this time every Saturday was just, uh, you know, freaking out. And uh, so, you know, the last time I uh, drank in public was at Woody's Wharf down in um, uh, Newport on, on the peninsula. And I was like, I'm going to try it one more time. And this time I'm going to control my drinking. My brother had invited me to go out with he and his new fiance and her friends. And I, I didn't have any blow. So I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to control my drinking. And I went down there and I blacked out probably in about 30 minutes. And apparently I sat at the edge of the bar. And as people were going to, onto the dance floor and setting their drinks down at this table, I was pushing them off into a pile of glass. And... I got my ass handed to me by the bouncers, and um, I woke up in bed the next day about 11 o'clock going, oh, my God. And um, I went on a bender. I, I had about two, three weeks off of work, and um, about four or five days into it, I thought I was going to die. And so I went online, and I looked and researched insurance, bought an insurance policy, not for treatment. This was in 2011. I bought it because I was uh, was afraid I was going to end up in the ER. And um, now here's the thing. I didn't stop what I was doing. 
I went online, I bought that uh, insurance policy, and I felt better, and I just kept right on going. It didn't even occur to me to stop, and that, that's what I got. So anyway, like I said, I had all, those, uh, all that booze and drugs in my car, and somebody eventually told on me, and I got caught, and they sent me to Big Book Camp in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. I was living at Villa Balboa, and I, I remember, man, I... I was actually relieved. I remember going in and I, I was working at a, a company that my brother owns and he called me in his office and the, and the lawyer type guy was there, the quality compliance guy, and I was like, it, it's over, you know, and they had a laundry list of things that I had done and I said, some of that's true, some of it I don't know, I've been blacking out a lot and um, uh you can fire me, I'll resign, whatever's better for you and the company, and I felt relief. Um, and I remember in the car ride home, the guy that took me home, who's an alcoholic who'd been sober for a while, said, he said, listen, I want you to know you're not a bad person and that you have a disease. And I was like, I don't, I don't know. You know, and I was going to go to Mexico. I was so ashamed. I was ready to just get in the car and go to Mexico. Problem was treatment center owned that car and my car from college was about 30 40 miles away and my mom was there and I did not want to go get that car so I was kind of stuck for a minute and this guy came over and um, he had probably at that time about 25 years and he came over and I you know I just broke down I just broke down and I started like it wasn't a fifth step it was like a confession you know and and uh I was just like, this, I've been doing that. And he said, hold on, hold on. I just got one question for you. Do you want help? And I said, yeah, I, I do, please. And um, he made a few phone calls, and he got me scholarship to a treatment center. And the next morning, I, I was on a plane, and they bumped me up to first class, you know. And the thing was, I, they offered me alcohol, and I didn't do it. I just didn't do it, and I don't know why. And um, I'll, t I'll tell you why. A couple nights before that, I looked in the mirror, and I, I hated myself. And I just looked awful. If you're interested, I can show you. I just got a new passport, and like the old passport compared to now, I look about 10, 15 years younger than when I was drinking. And anyway, I, I remember looking in the mirror, and I said, if there is a God, please help me, and I collapsed on the floor sobbing, and I think I might have done one, two, and three right there because I just surrendered, and I got fired, and I got sent to treatment, and I was like, what the hell is going on, you know, and I'm, I'm flying to Mississippi, and, and, and I'm not drinking, and I'm like, this is insane, and I remember I got in the van and started telling him every, you know, I just started, like, purging, and, uh, you know, so anyway, I get in that treatment center, and I, I really um, identified with the other men there, and I identified with their stories, and I identified with the way they drank, and I identified with the way they used, and I began to uh, talk about my my story, and uh, you know, getting getting closer to some other alcoholics, and really seeing I'm no better, I'm no worse than they are, and problem was is that I had PTSD from going to church in West Virginia, where I was born. <laughs> you know, half the family was Methodist, 
half the family was Baptist, and they were my grandparents, and they were arguing when I was a little kid about where we needed to go to church because we moved to Huntington. And it terrified me. Like, they're so upset. And so we had to go Presbyterian, and uh, we go to this church, and church in West Virginia is a little a little scary. It's not these like free love rock band things they got out here. It was, it was fire and brimstone. It was dark. There was these uh, creepy stained glass windows, and they dressed me up in a little robe and gave me this golden candle putter outer, and it was really heavy. And I'm like carrying this thing, and I'm walking up the aisle, and God became this concept to me that was uh, half Santa Claus, half Tony Soprano, and. <laughs> Look, looked like Zeus, right? And, and so, you know, I was, I was like, God's going to kill me. Like, I'm bad. And, you know, and so I was terrified. And about, you know, about 12 or 13, I completely abandoned that idea. I remember when I was getting confirmed and I was like a little smug, little smartass, intellectual. And I was like, so you're saying that, you know, all these people are going to hell. And... That irritated them, and they had me go talk to a priest, and just like my grandmother telling me, you know, the answer was not satisfactory to my little intellectual mind, you know, and uh, so I didn't think I could do step two. I realized that I had no power when it came to alcohol, when it came to drugs, but I didn't see how I could possibly do the second step and the third step. And so I remember I was kind of complaining about it, and this old-timer said, um, I think I was identifying as an atheist at that time, just to piss people off. And um, he said, well, you know, I heard a little bit about your story, heard a little bit about looking in the mirror, I, I heard you arrested a bunch of times, and he said, what were you doing in the back of the squad car? And I said, praying. And he said, you're, you're not atheist. I was like, you know, he said, you're agnostic. And then he said, God's not lost. And that really pissed me off. I was like, what the hell is he talking about? However, if you look in the big book, the second step doesn't talk about any of that. It just asks us one short question. Do you believe or are you willing to believe in a power greater than yourself? And, you know, the, fir the guys in the treatment center, uh, my first sponsor, I believed that they knew that uh, what I should be doing and that I didn't know what I should do. And I believed that they had my best interest at heart. And I also was going to this group called the Chicken Coop when I got back here. And I believed that those guys believed that the steps work. And so I, that was sufficient for me. I didn't have to have any kind of definition or concept of that higher power. Now, so second step, I'm like, okay, I can do this. You show up, right? The third step gets a little more serious there and, uh, you know, turn our will and our lives over, the, over to God as we understood him. And I was like, I cannot possibly do this. There's no way I can do the third step. But my sponsor never talked to me about God's will. He never explained to me what God was or wasn't. He didn't even mention it. And I don't even know what his concept was, my first sponsor. And so when I started looking at the big book, it's almost like addition through subtraction, right? Because 
the thing that the big book talks about in the beginning of, of the third step is it talks about self-will. My sponsor had a lot of opinions about my self-will, especially later when we got to the inventory. But anyway, I remember I left that treatment center in Mississippi. I got back here, and, I'm, and my first sponsor was about a year from relapsing. I didn't know it at the time. He was kind of disinterested in AA. He was disinterested in the steps. And I told this guy, you know, I feel like I'm going to drink. I have about five months at this time. And I'm at a meeting. I'm like, I'm going to drink. I'm going to drink. And um, so he's like, go to meetings. So me and uh, my buddy go to four meetings in one day. And at the end of the day, he's dropping me off. And he's like, I'm going to go shoot heroin tonight. I thought he was joking. And he did. He called me the next morning, and uh, I freaked out, went to a 6.30 a.m. meeting, said, we went to four meetings, and my buddy, you got loaded last night. I'm going to drink, and I, you know, I don't want to, but it's going to happen. And uh, some guy said, well, what step are you on? And I said, I don't know. He said, fire your sponsor. So that night, I saw him walking towards my sponsor, and I said, he told me to fire you. <laughs> <laughs> And my sponsor was pissed. He turned red. He turned on his heel and walked right out of the out of the Newport Club. And little did I know at the time, but he called his sponsor. And his sponsor said, what are you doing? Work steps with the guys. So my sponsor called me the next day. He said, you're coming over to my house, and we're going to work steps. You better have three or four hours. And I'm like, oh, my God, he is angry, you know. And so we go over. I go over to his house on that Sunday, and he reads the entire freaking big book to me, like all the way to page 63. And I'm like, what is happening? And this was in 2011, and he was wearing skinny jeans before they were cool, and he was a hipster, and he had a waxed mustache and waxed hair, and he was already freaking me out a little bit. And he stopped right there in the middle of 63 and stood up and said, take my hand and get on your knees. <laughs> and I was like, what did you just say to me? <laughs> like, he said, we're going to pray. And I was like, that's even worse, you know what I mean? And, and um, we hold hands, which creeped me out. And we kneel at this little coffee table and we say the third step prayer. And he has me following along in the big book. And he starts weeping with spiritual joy. And I was like, I'm going to die of alcoholism. This is BS, you know. And so I go, go back to the chicken coop. And I'm standing outside after the meeting making fun of him to some of the other guys in my sober living and the same old timer overheard me. <laughs> he said, why don't you just shut up, Dave? And in fact, you should do that third step every morning if you want to live. And I was like, what? And so even though I was agnostic, I just started doing it every morning, probably mostly out of fear. And I worked my way through the rest of the steps. And I worked with another guy into step three, and I was still agnostic. But I was praying every morning, and I was doing everything I could to stay sober. And I remember I was like, dude, we got to do this weird thing. We're going we're gonna to hold hands, and we're going to do the third step. And I'm like, I, I don't know. Something worked, and uh, I don't want to screw it up for you. So we're holding hands, and we're doing that prayer. And one second I'm agnostic, and the next second I'm not. 
And I started weeping with spiritual joy, just like my sponsor had. And then I started laughing hysterically at myself. And I, you know, I've asked that guy, like, do you remember that? And he doesn't even remember it. But to me, it was a spiritual experience. And I've had many of those, mostly when I'm sponsoring guys. Um, anyway, so that's my experience with the third step. And so I began to look at a, I, I look at the steps differently now than I did then. But so that sponsor, we did one, two, three in that weekend. He said, write an inventory. You have a week. And I was like, oh, my God. He was pissed. And um, so I, but I did it. I did a very thorough inventory in that week. And I came back over to his house the next weekend. And he said, you better have three or four hours. And we did four, five, six, seven, and eight all in one sitting. And by the end of the second week, I was making amends. And uh, it, something shifted in me. You see, I had done one step in a treatment center before I left Mississippi in that treatment center. And what had happened with that one is I wrote a bunch of stuff down, and it, they asked me, you know, who do you want to read it to? And they gave me a priest, a rabbi, or this person. And they said, and an alcoholic. I said, I want the alcoholic. And um, so I sat down with him, and I still at this point thought it was like confession. And so I just started confessing my bad behavior. And, you know, one of the things I was talking about was a woman I dated in college who was one of the sweetest, kindest, most beautiful women that, that I knew, that I've known. And she was just, she was just so nice. And um, I, I really ran ragged through her life. And... When I began talking about it, I began tearing up. And he laughed and said she was the healthy one, and that's why she left. And I was like, what did you just say to me? I didn't think he should have an opinion about any of this. And he said, do you know what those tears are? And I said, no. And he said, the last gasp of a dying ego. And I was like, I, I looked at him like, I have no idea what you're talking about. And so he wrote it down on the bottom of it. He just writes it on a piece of paper. He spins it around, shoves it across the conference table to me, the last gasp of a dying ego. And on the top, it said selfish, self-centered, resentful, angry, rage, all of these things. And I was, I was like, the nerve of this guy to write down these horrible things about me when I'm sitting here confessing. And I had no idea that that's what the fifth step was all about. You see, later I learned that a sponsor's job is to help you see those character defects. And so by the time I did that second inventory back here in California, I began to see my part. And so I'll give you an example of one from my first inventory. There was this guy that I, that I was in college with, and uh, I joined a fraternity at UCLA, and there was a lot of hazing. And this guy was like Chet from Weird Science for us that are older. He was like like the bro commander, the supreme bro hazer. And I only joined a fraternity because that's where the drinking and the drugs were. You know, I didn't want to do all this BS, and uh, he, he could sense it. And he could sense that I didn't take the, the little stupid book they had. Um, it's like they had these little rules and things, and I was just like, whatever, you know. And um, anyway, he started just hazing the crap out of me, and I hated him. 
And I remember that for years after college, we would hang out, and I would always, anytime he would show up, I'd be like, get that MF out of here. And I was, most of the time, I wasn't like that belligerent. And I was like, if you hate one person, it's got to be him, and he deserves it. And so I'm telling this story to my sponsor. You know, he dumped paint on me. He did this. And my sponsor's like, okay, well, hold on a second. He sounds like a real jerk. The world and its people are often quite wrong. But that was like 15 years ago. You're still angry about all this stuff, and there are a bunch of other guys there. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'm still angry. And he's like, well, did you ever do anything to him? What did you do to him? Were you ever selfish, dishonest, self-seeking, frightened? And I was like, uh-oh. Because I like to hold stuff in and then get them back good, you know, when they're not. And so we were at Lake Havasu um, one year when I was in college, and he, this guy wanted shrooms. And I was like, he does not have the temperament. I had done a lot of shrooms, and I was like, he doesn't have the temperament for this. This is going to mess him up. I'm like, yes. And he wanted to go out to this island in Lake ha in the desert, you know, in Lake Havasu. And so I took him out there in the ski boat, and he's yelling at me, and the shrooms haven't hit him yet. And I'm like, this guy is so, he's in big trouble. And I dropped him off, and I went back, and I started drinking, and I was like, you know what would be funny is if he just stayed out there, and he did. I didn't go get him. And um, a fisherman picked him up, brought him back, and he was all out of his mind and freaked out. And it started this chain of events that uh, culminated in me being in India after, uh, like before, after I was in Portugal, I'd gone around the world when I graduated, and we had this, um, Jerry Garcia had died a few years before that, but there were still these deadheads in this place called Goa. And, this, you know, a couple of these guys had this big brick of hash, and they're like, hey, you guys want this? We're leaving. Can't travel with it. And so they gave it to us, and we tried to smoke it. We couldn't even put a dent in it. So I'm like, you know what? we got to send this back to UCLA. But it stinks. You know, we tried to spray uh, mosquito repellent on it and stuff. They're coming. We're like, it's going to add to their high. They'll be all right. But anyway, um, it smelled so strong. And I was like, I really do not want to put one of my friend's names on this thing. <laughs> you see where it's going. So I'm like, I know. I'll write good old RB. And that was his initials name on it. And I'll mail it to the fraternity house. And the, if somebody gets in trouble, it'll be him. And so I get back in the country, I'm at a UCLA football game, and he walks up, and um, I still remember, he had a pink, this just just described, he had a pink Izod on with penny loafers with pennies in them, you know, and little cargo shorts, and he's like, why did you put my name on that package? And I said, because if anybody got in trouble, I wanted it to be you, MF, and we got in this fist fight. And so here I am in AA 15 years later talking to my sponsor about this. My sponsor's like, man, you really, you really, uh, over, you got a part in this, you know. And it was very clear to me, and he pointed out all these character defects that applied to that situation. And um, he was one of the first amends I made. And I went to him and I said, hey, I want to talk about some behavior I regret. I left you on that island when you were shrooming. I put your name on that package that we sent from India. You could have gotten in a lot of trouble for that. 
It was very selfish of me. It was dishonest. And I was really just, uh, anytime I was drunk, I was really belligerent towards you. And I regret it. And I said, um, how can I make it right? And he's talked for about 15 minutes. And he had not changed. I mean, he was a little better, I guess. But he worked for Budweiser. He may be one of us. I don't know. We're not best friends. But the thing that happened inside me is I forgave him. I, I can't even remember the stuff that he did to me. I remember what I did to him, but I remember having a laundry list of stuff he did to me on that first fourth step. I, doesn't it, it's not even coming into my mind right now. And that was the key. All I had to do was sweep off my side of the street, claim my part, make amends for what I did, and I forgave him. And here's the thing. His first name is the same first name as my father. And my father was very abusive when I was a small child. And some of that venom, some of that retaliation, that revenge that I put on that guy was from that resentment. And I didn't even know it. And so when I made amends there, it cracked the door for me to get over the resentment I had towards my father. And you never know. You never know what's going to happen with those with those amends. And that's four through nine. And I loved step 10, 11, and 12. You know, to me, um, 10 is probably my favorite in the big book because it talks about what I do in the moment and how I keep clear in the moment, how I clear that channel between me and that power that I didn't know or understand when I first came here. And it tells me that I do a few things. And to me, I can sum it up really simply. Like I watch for my character defects, which I still got. I had some today when I was surfing. This, I was surfing without a leash, and, you know, that's kind of arrogant. And um, I lost my board, and I told this um, beginner woman who had, like, the GoPro, the hat, the gloves, and all this stuff, hey, grab my board. And she said, you don't have a leash, and she let it go. <laughs> And I was pissed. And the next wave, I just dropped in right and cut her off. And I'm like, God, I got to slow down. And, you know, so I stayed away from her the rest of the time. But, um, you know, I look for my character defects. I watch for them. When they pop up, not if or they might, when they pop up, I ask for them to be removed immediately. And then I share them. I share with someone else what they are, what's going on with me. And then I look for my part, and if there is one, I make amends. And then I turn my thoughts to those I can help. And, you know, and for me, it's been alcoholics and drug addicts. I've just been put in a position where I've got, gotten to sponsor a lot of guys, and I've gotten to uh, speak a lot. And um, it's just what I guess I've been called to do, and I've been really active in this program. And... Um, you know, I can't describe, like, how it feels. It's like some days I don't think. I just kind of go through my day, and then I go, I get backwards. It's like, it's like the nine-step promises. You'll comprehend the word serenity. I thought that meant you'll be serene always, but no. I know how to get back there. And the work has become so simple for me that I know and I feel it when I do something to harm someone else, I immediately start feeling awful. 
and I want to get rid of it as quickly as I can. And it just, it's such a gift. And it's, um, I mean, one of the things that sums it up the best for me is the uh, uh, prayer of uh, St. Francis. And I say that every night. And um, that's in the 12 and 12 in the, in the 11th step. And I change the lords and the thys and the thous to stuff that I identify with, like the creator, the great spirit, great reality. And that's just for me. And uh, one of the things I end that prayer with is uh, I'm asleep, dreaming I'm awake, and the steps open my eyes to see reality, which is God's everlasting dream for me. And that sums it up for me. The only thing that's in my way from enjoying life is me. And when I remove me, I'm in the moment. And it's wonderful. I mean, if you look around this room, none of us really have any problems right now. But I like to create them in my mind. And if I do it long enough, I'll drink and I'll use. And so the steps, they're better than any self-help, anything you could ever think of, because they remove, you become selfless, beyond self, beyond the human experience to that whatever it is. So thank you for letting me share. I appreciate it. Yeah.